Okay, pasa mufasa ni hao konnichiwa privet. Bonjour, buongiorno. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. Can you feel that? Yada yada yada. It's Friday, baby. Not that that means anything in the cosmic timeline, man. Welcome. Glad you're here. Today we've got Dr. Rick Barnett, a licensed psychologist doctorate, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and just a really cool dude based in Vermont on the podcast. An honor to talk to a professional and someone who's done a ton of different trainings. He's going to tell us about a few of them right now. In addition to maintaining his own robust practice and running a rather impactful and influential conference in Vermont which we're going to hear about as well. Stick around for a while. Listen to the whole podcast. Let me know what you think. And big news, I'm elated to welcome Real Mushrooms as an official sponsor of the Micropreneur Podcast, one of the largest and most influential functional mushroom companies in North America who have a legacy going back decades. They are the top brass in this industry. And it's a huge honor to welcome them as a sponsor. Always check your supplements, make sure that they're using the mushrooms and none of this myceliated oats or fairy dusting business where people sprinkle a little bit of a trending mushroom into the overpriced supplements they're selling you and rounding it out with a bunch of other supplements that are not mushrooms. Be mindful, purchase your mushrooms from people who know what they're doing. Cute, real mushrooms. I also want to welcome Everyday Dose Mushroom Coffee as an official sponsor of the Mycopreneur Podcast. Everyday Dose has been rapidly ascending in profile over the last couple of years. Now there's a false dichotomy going around that you have to either drink coffee or drink mushroom coffee. You can't drink both, and I call malarkey on that. I personally like to mix in my Everyday Dose coffee into my actual coffee, and it works wonders because at the end of the day, all of us should be consuming more mushrooms. Yes, consuming more mushrooms, real mushrooms, actual mushrooms, the fruiting body. And of course, I've got to shout out my longtime sponsors, MicroBoost, M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T, purveyor of high quality functional mushroom supplements. Check them out. Let them know I sent you, M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T.com. As always, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. It helps immensely. Please consider sharing it with a friend. And while I got you here, check out the Mycopreneur newsletter on Beehive. I've got links to that on my social profiles covering the worldwide mushroom industry and championing a lot of underrepresented viewpoints because so much of the focus on mushrooms and psychedelics, etc., is primarily looking at North America and Europe, maybe a little bit of Australia, a little bit of Israel. Newsflash, it's a huge world out there. Tons of people love mushrooms. So you're going to hear stories from all over the planet, as well as a bunch of cutting-edge insights from the underground and from the more corporatized spaces. Again, that's Mycopreneur Newsletter. All right, without further ado, let's get down to business. What's up, everybody? We've got Dr. Rick Barnett in the house all the way out in Vermont, snowy Vermont. How are things on the East Coast of the United States today, Dr. Rick? Well, I live in a little bit of an oasis, a little bit of a, a bubble. We are in a snow globe. We've heard that metaphor in the psychedelic field, the, the, the snow globe. So the snow globe gets shaken up here periodically in the wintertime, and it certainly has today. Uh, it is beautiful. The whole East Coast, Northern East Coast, got a big snowstorm the last couple of days, and uh, we're delighted. I'm happy. I love the snow. Man, last time I was in New York City, there was a whiteout, there was a blizzard, and I was driving an SUV from Connecticut into New York City, and it went from blue skies 
to this absolute blizzard in about 15 minutes. And I've never seen anything like it, especially as a Californian who has no idea how to drive in the snow. I'm pretty sure I just pulled over and uh, walked to the venue that was a few miles away in a blizzard. So I can empathize a little bit. Now, Dr. Rick, as a licensed psychologist doctorate, licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and a uh, someone with a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology, I imagine you've been in this profession for a while now. And over the last few years, an interest in how psychedelic-assisted therapy has absolutely taken the psychology world by snowstorm, it feels like. So I'd be curious to hear, when did people in your field start taking seriously this notion that molecules like psilocybin, 5-MeO, DMT, MDMA, etc., with a therapy component, could actually have a radically beneficial impact on people? Well, you know, I really think it's still at the front end of that. Believe it or not, most of my field, most of my colleagues, the general mental health world clinicians really haven't totally embraced psychedelic assisted psychotherapy yet. There's a few of us who, you know, got wind of it early on, uh, whether it's because we had an intuition from our earlier uh, wayward youth uh, from the, the potential for psychedelics or uh, maybe we've been fo following drug policy or drug research, psychopharmacology research, and seeing this stuff uh, really taking hold in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. But I would say the majority of my colleagues are still really on the front end wanting to start to learn about it. And it's it's weird. Like, so I'm, I'm giving several talks this, this spring to different groups of colleagues across the country, just introductory, uh, introductory remarks on like the emerging clinical applications for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. But there, you know, I mean, you and I are in the field. Uh, we, we, we've been immersed in psychedelics now for several years. And it seems like, how could it be that people still think LSD or psilocybin is some weird, you know, fringe thing? And because we talk about it and and uh, study about it and, and everything all the time. But there's a bunch of people still have that stigma. And there's a bunch of clinicians that are still like, wait, wait, this is scary. We, we need more research. We need more research. And that just, I just leaves me my head scratching. Well, thanks for the sobering reminder of that, because we do oftentimes silo ourselves off or it feels like we're in a bubble. And you and I have been, and many of the listeners of the podcast, reading and following for a few years now or decades in some cases. But it's easy to forget that there's a broader world outside that's still very attached to the stigma. And one of the remarks I hear often from people who are involved in the more medicalized ecosystem around psychedelics is that there needs to be more data. We need data, we need more data. So I'd be curious, how do you see the role of data and study design, clinical studies, et cetera, impacting and hopefully alleviating the stigma over the, over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, I've gone through my own evolution of understanding that. I, I am somebody who, you know, traditionally works and lives in the Western medical health, broken healthcare system. And um, that's my bread and butter. And that's what I was trained in. And, and, and I do appreciate the role of data. I do appreciate the role of the medicalization, the medicalized model of of this kind of stuff. And, and I'm trying to be diplomatic here, which I probably don't need to be on this podcast, but, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's something that I, I also, um, I can be irreverent and I can be a little bit rebellious and I like to push the envelope a little bit. And I really think that 
you know, there's a lot of problems with embracing uh, research, evidence-based medicine, looking for the gold standard in randomized controlled trials and, you know, throwing open label studies under the bus and, you know, really dismissing anecdotal data and forget about the thousands of years of indigenous history with all this, you know, it's like, we need the data, we need to have more research. And, you know, frankly, I, I understand that, that there is a strong need for that. Most of the U.S. Western world really believes that we need science to prove and back this stuff before we dive into it. And so it has a huge role for that large population of people who won't try or won't even take this stuff seriously unless they see it, you know, in like 12,000 randomized controls trials. But um, I think there's a bunch of us that don't necessarily need more data. And there are those of us who are marching ahead, uh, wanting to make sure that this stuff gets decriminalized, legalized, medicalized. I don't care. Like, let's get it. Let's keep this train rolling because people people need help. And even if they don't need help for mental health issues, it's like, let's let's offer it to people who are just interested in an experience and, you know, opening their minds and opening their hearts. And, you know, there's a real place for that, too. It doesn't have to just be for, you know, people suffering from depression or trauma or anxiety. It can be for everybody. I couldn't agree more. I was a product of the D.A.R.E. generation, came from a quite conservative family background and was a baseball player for years. So psychedelics were not at all in my purview. It wasn't part of my culture for, I remember in my health class, senior year of high school, watching some kind of propaganda that was trotted out to us about someone who had an LSD flashback. And then, you know, they had this traumatic experience and all these cartoon characters started walking around them. And it was like reefer madness transferred onto LSD. So that was sort of my understanding of psychedelics. And I remember discovering the Arrowwood forums. I remember discovering Terrence McKenna because I started hearing stories anecdotally from people I knew and respected who had experienced mushrooms and LSD. And they may have been a little bit eccentric or zany, but they were very well put together people, very interesting people, very eloquent. And I remember thinking, I can't square these two realities, this person I know who's had this experience versus everything I've heard from a top-down government-directed drug program telling me that one hit of LSD essentially is going to make me insane. And then I decided, you know, after a lot of research, as you say, we could call some of the Arrowhead forums or even Reddit, although it wasn't around at the time, sort of an open label study. And there's still a lot of journalists quoting Reddit, anonymous Reddit accounts of people's experiences. And so what I'm getting at is that it was really the peer review process of my own peers, not the medical establishment who convinced me that this was an experience that I wanted to have and that I benefited greatly from. And I'm curious to know your, your event that you hosted. You hosted a conference in Vermont, and these conferences really function as a hub for a lot of people who are at the vanguard or the forefront of this emerging field to share, each, to share stories, to connect with each other, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit about the Vermont conference that you hosted that many decorated luminaries in the space came out to? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. But just going back to the whole, you know, uh, D.A.R.E. program and the uh, conditioning that some of us got when we were younger. You know, I think just to be fair, again, I love nuance and and we can polarize the shit out of anything we want. And that's fun, too. But, you know, in between there, you know, there is the reality that for some people, there are risks associated with these these drugs. Um, 
not that many at all. And, you know, obviously government entities and, you know, the super conservative risk averse people are like, oh, my God, take one hit of acid and you're going to go crazy. But um, there are, you know, there are certain risks. And, you know, interestingly, talking about the conference. So we had uh, Dr. Rosalind Watts, who was a former researcher at Imperial College on psilocybin for depression. She's a tremendous person. And she's, you know, she's taken she's evolved in her thinking, too, at one time, really um a strong promoter of psilocybin, and she still is in some ways, but she's really evolved her thinking into focusing on not so much on the the, the mushrooms and, and the uh, medicine experience, but really the integration of those experiences, you know, more of the psychotherapy or community support, uh, nature-based connected, uh, you know, sort of results or, or supporting systems for these, these larger medicine experiences. And that's one way to mitigate the risks associated with it again which there aren't that many risks i mean people have been taking these medicines for thousands you know hundreds thousands decades whatever a long time and you know the uh the number of people harmed is is pretty minimal compared to you know alcohol or tobacco or or anything else for that matter but the conference itself we we did it we've done it two years in a row last year we had Roz watts and julie holland and the Midhoffers from from maps and rick doblin has come two years in a row ben sessa has come two years in a row um, we had an underground practitioner here in vermont share her experience with us which was awesome not just like you know academic luminaries but people like you know from from the woods here in Vermont, sharing their experience, offering medicine to people, uh, hundreds of people here in Vermont. And that was that was awesome. Carolyn Dorson from Rutgers and Janice Phelps from the California Institute for Integral Studies, where I got my psych part of my psychedelic training from. So lots of people. And we're doing it again this year. Maybe get Amanda Fielding, Fielding from the UK to come over. Uh, Robin Carhart Harris is. Uh, toying with the idea of coming and uh, just a lot of great people, very small. So you were at MAPS. I actually saw you at um, Psychedelic Science in Denver across the exhibit hall. And uh, I mean, that place was a fucking zoo and super fun. And I can't believe they pulled it off. But then Vermont with like, you know, 250 people like nestled in the mountains of Vermont, like just hanging out with each other, like having sandwiches outside, just a small, intimate group of people totally different vibe and we're going to do it again this year and it's just it's really it's great to get together with so many uh leading researchers ghoul dolan came last year chuck raison came the year before and you get to hang out and rub shoulders and just ask you know have lunch with these people because it's such a small venue maybe dennis you will have you come up for it i'd be honored yes please let's do that i've actually never been to vermont it feels like it is very aligned with my wheelhouse i'm a west coast product san diego san francisco and i'm currently down in southern mexico but i would love to be there a lot of the names you just mentioned i'm familiar with and several have been on the podcast including amanda fielding which was a great honor to interview her in person in england last year and there's so much going on right now with this emerging ecosystem, right? And there's so many different access points to address it. You have people who are trying to institutionalize and medicalize the psychedelic movement, and that's their predominant focus. You have the decriminalization crowd, which is very active and vocal. And I, for one, have been hopefully vocal enough and will continue to be vocal about the need for the legacy underground community and the medical, more establishment-oriented community to work together. Andrew D'Angelo has been on the podcast twice. He's a Forbes writer and a cannabis veteran in that industry. 
and he's been writing about this, that there's really two, two markets or two communities in a lot of the way. There's this above board, quote, biotech emerging sector. And then there's the underground legacy practitioners, which includes a lot of indigenous communities and a lot of people who have essentially been meeting each other's needs in an almost mutual aid focused format. And a lot of the times as psychedelics are going mainstream, it feels like these two worldviews are at odds with each other and are butting heads and the legacy underground, the, the roots and the suits, you could say, one wants to bury the other. The, the suits want to corral and monopolize and gatekeep and patent. And then the roots want to give everything away, essentially. And, you know, I might be oversimplifying it here, but the idea is that there's really like these multiple different access points and communities. And I'm trying to get people to work together, I guess, is sort of what moving forward I want to see happen. And this conference you mentioned sounds like a great example of how that can happen, that one of the critiques I've heard of psychedelic science, which I very much enjoyed, or these other more corporate conferences, is they're not very psychedelic. There's sterile fluorescent lighting. They're in these big exhibition halls. What about doing something with 250 people out in the woods and with you know legacy practitioners? So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about these different communities and the different access points. And is there a way for us all to work together or are we destined to have multiple tracks that people are on indefinitely? Yeah, I mean, that's really, I think that's why you and I are aligned. And there's several people out there that, you know, if you have that sort of mindset that you just described that these two suits sort of polar opposites or, or these roots and suits fighting against each other, if you have the mindset that actually they're complementary or there's plenty of room under this big tent, like it's okay, everybody can do their thing, don't. Don't step on anybody's toes, which um, I really believe that is possible. And maybe that's idealistic, but I mean, yeah, we put together this conference and it was extremely well received to have that sort of hybrid um, bringing together of people doing the work, legacy underground people. I mean, let's be real. It's, it is what's happening in this in in the United States. That's why there's so many decriminalization bills. Like there's something like more than half the states have decrim bills on the docket or ballot initiatives going on. And in fact, I was just on a call with the Boston Psychedelic Research Group yesterday. Rick Doblin came on, talked about the progress MAPS has been making. He talked about the challenges associated with the big news that came out about, you know, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation going bye-bye and Lycos Therapeutics taking over. Um, but, you know, to me, I think that Rick Doblin, um, you know, he's, I think he's held up there as this amazing guy, which I believe he is, and everybody's got flaws, and he's just trying to make his way through. He's always willing to admit he's made mistakes along the way, and um, and he really, to me, embodies the kind of person that's, you know, pushing hard for medicalization and pushing hard for legalization, decriminalization. Like, he seems to embody that, like, all paths. Now, you you, you had, a, you did a parody with, um, I forgot his name, Christian Angermeyer on, on social media, recently, which was hilarious. And, you know, when when I've and I've seen this for the last few years, when you see these corporate entities saying these are dangerous drugs and they need to be regulated and we need to be the ones that are enforcing the regulation around it because they're so dangerous. And if they get out into the world, it's going to be a shit show. And and like, you know, Rick Doblin doesn't have that. He never says that he never he's like nowhere. But these other folks, like you said, some people say that, and I understand they're protecting their investor interests and stuff, and I understand the capitalist market, and I'm not throwing shade on that. But at the same time, those kinds of statements 
are so ridiculous that, you know, you have to make parody and satire out of it because, I mean, I've been following that all along. Tim Ferriss and Christian Angermeyer a couple of years ago went off back and forth with each other about this this kind of thing, uh, you know, patents and, and things like that. So to me, to answer your question, absolutely, it is possible to embrace that nuance in between and realize that there's plenty of room here for everybody. And even your social media post about cannabis, like how much how much black market cannabis is still very, very alive and well, despite the legalization of cannabis. All of it. I mean, it's and that's what's going to happen with with uh, psychedelics. There's, you know, you can. It's easy to grow mushrooms, so you can get it from a lab and you can take it in a medical office, or you can grow it yourself or go see someone out in the woods. And as long as it's safe and you know well designed, and you know people aren't being uh, taken advantage of in in all kinds of ways, then it's, there's a big, there's a lot of room under this big umbrella for sure. Totally. I'm an advocate of education before regulation, because the reality is FDA designated MDMA and psilocybin as breakthrough therapies, which means they're supposed to be expedited and on the fast track to becoming available legal therapies in 2017 and 2018, respectively. Now, what happened was around 2018, 2019, a couple of these companies, including Atai Life Sciences and Christian Angermeyer went public which set off this chain reaction of mainstream press of every outlet in the world from Forbes to BBC to ESPN, et cetera, Al Jazeera, Tokyo Times covering the medical potential of psychedelics. Of course, there's lots of people interested in this now saying, wow, the data is really good. The anecdotal evidence is really good. Oprah is talking about it. Where am I going to get these things? And that model has largely failed to materialize unless we're talking about the underground legacy market. And this is something I've been pretty keenly interested in that essentially a lot of these figureheads arguably created a demand they could not fulfill. And now we're still in a position where they're saying, oh, it's coming. It's 2028. It's coming. It's like mushrooms, as you know, move at a much quicker speed. They move at the file sharing speed almost like it's Napster. It's somebody has mushrooms, learns how to grow them. Wow, this is awesome. So you know, next thing you know, it's all across the community. I had a dental appointment recently where this woman started chatting me up and eventually I'm pretty, you know, low key public facing unless I'm online about this stuff. And then she asked me what I do and I start telling her about micopreneur and she's like, oh, my neighbor grows mushrooms. I'm like, this is a random interaction, you know, with someone and that's where we are right now. So education before regulation. I actually heard Rick Doblin and Christian Angermeyer in person debating a lot of what we're talking about right now in Denver. And then I had a chance to briefly chat with Christian Angermeyer afterward and take a photo with him and my Rick Doblin puppet. And he was very much on the side still in 2023 of trying to bottleneck and rigidly hierarchically limit access to psychedelics. And his talking point, which I found interesting, was about how in Eleusis, the ancient Greeks, which arguably used some kind of psychedelic compound for their rituals, there's a lot of information about this, people can research on their own, that they gatekept that and that there were penalties. And uh, it was an interesting argument point, but nevertheless, my argument point is that Rick Doblin, Christian Angermeyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they all used non-clinical psychedelics, essentially. They use psychedelics under their own direction. Michael Pollan did the same thing. And there's also this idea of the pollen effect, that once he wrote How to Change Your Mind, that created a much more public interest in psychedelics in the mainstream than currently existed at that time, coupled with the John Hopkins data, et cetera. So we're at a really interesting inflection point, as you know right now. And there have been a lot of providers and purveyors 
who are stepping up to fulfill this, one of them being Five. And they, of course, are an educational program working with Five MEO DMT. You know a lot more about it than I because you've been working in this program. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in working with Five and why Five MEO DMT out of all of the different programs and molecules you could have studied and, and focused on with this period of time in your life? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because that's five uh, meo DMT is the perfect example of why education, education, education is so important. As their demand grows and people hear about, oh, there's this new drug, two CB and n bombs, and you know all these things that people are exploring and the different routes of administration, vape pens and all this kind of stuff. Like five meo DMT is no joke, and the fact that there's demand being created for it, and there's all kinds of people out there serving it up. You've, I've seen some Vice documentaries uh, in places in Mexico, Tulum, where you know you pay a hundred bucks and go into a tent somewhere, and they make they have you smoke bufo and you know five meo DMT, and and there's no there's no screening or anything. Just whoever you are, if you pay a hundred bucks, you can go have a a five experience in a tent, and then go hit the beach afterwards. And you know there's just there's just no regulation, not regulation, but there's no education around it. People don't know what they're getting into. And so five, the five education platform was created by Joelle Briere and Victoria Wexner. I don't know how you pronounce her last name exactly, Victoria. And they really decided that there was, this is such a powerful medicine, a sacred molecule, if you will. And it needs to be taught and delivered in ways that really keep people safe. And it's it generally is a safe drug, like pharmacologically safe drug, but it's so powerful psychologically and emotionally that if it's not handled with respect and care and designing uh, the, the container for it and preparing people for it and offering them support afterwards, you know, people can kind of go off, go off the deep end a little bit. So I actually... I have studied, I did ketamine training with Polaris Insight Institute. I did uh, general psychedelic therapy training with CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies. I've done other trainings and webinars. This particular training program for 5-MeO-DMT was a year-long trauma-informed facilitator training program. It was all online every Monday for a year. And then at the end of it, we went down to their retreat center in Mexico and spent two weeks together, studying the molecule, understanding the different routes of administration, uh, holding space for one another, and really, uh, really understanding how they do it legally in Mexico. It's a legal, it's a legal drug in Mexico. And um, man, I don't know if you've ever done it before, but it's, it's like the next level. The reason why I find it so uh, interesting and appealing as a tool and all these medicines are dentists are just they're just fucking tools. They're not like some cure silver bullet kind of thing, which is why it's so important that we're having this discussion and people are talking about it, about education and support, because uh, you can't just, you know, smoke 5-MeO-DMT and think, you know, you're going to be cured. Same thing with ketamine and psilocybin and MDMA. However, um, yeah, they they really designed an excellent, excellent program that was you know, we went down there and it was not for personal exploration or healing or anything. It was like, we are, we are on task for like classes day in and day out. We had a written exam. We had a practical exam. They took it extremely seriously. Uh, and I, I, I really appreciated that. They're really, really uh, smart people, caring people. Uh, and they really want this particular medicine to be rolled out in 
safe and effective ways without necessarily needing the, you know, medicalized FDA stamp of a, of approval on it. And I'm going back down there because they're doing one of the larger studies on 5-MeO-DMT partnered with, uh, I believe, um, Imperial College of London, that they're going to be um, administering 5-MeO-DMT to uh, 30 subjects in sequence over the course of uh, a few different weekends and with, with a EEG, an electroencephalograph cap on your head, 64 points of contact, they're going to be measuring brainwave activities while on 5-MeO-DMT. And I'm grateful to be a subject for that uh, particular research study. And that's going to be open source data that anybody can take a look at. And hopefully uh, I'm going to be donating my brain to science for a good cause. That's a very good cause. Yeah, I haven't made it out there yet, but... I was born on the border of San Diego and Tijuana and have been active in various philanthropic causes and community causes and family connections since the early 90s. I was born in 1989. So I essentially describe San Diego and Tijuana as one city with an arbitrary border and boundary that was enforced six or seven generations ago when there have been you know, people crossing that border freely for thousands of years. And it's a really interesting dichotomy overall that I've done documentary films on and taught classes in high school that focused on the border. And it's really interesting now that so many people are coming to Mexico specifically for these treatments, like in Tijuana, Rosarito, et cetera, there's a bunch of ibogaine clinics of varying qualities, right? And I could name drop different clinics all day. There's some in the Cancun region, but as you mentioned, 5-MeO-DMT, ibogaine, uh, mushrooms, you name it, peyote, salvia, it's here. Most people don't know this, but salvia is only endemically found in the wild in southern Mexico. Nowhere else on the planet, the particular type of salvia that people are smoking. So there's a rich history and, and legacy and lineage of use of different entheogenic molecules. And not just the molecules themselves, but the traditions around them, right? Like in Huala de Jimenez, as I'm sure you know, that was the only surviving mushroom ritual. That's what made it so interesting for so many people is that you can find entheogenic mushrooms all over the planet, but there was no surviving ritual except for what was found with Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina. That's a whole other story about how that turned out. But that's part of the reason I've continued to be active in this region is after having several decades of connections and relationships here, there's a lot going on. And it's amazing to go out foraging mushrooms and be with locally trained academics and mycologists here who are not coming from Denver or Utah or London or whatever, which there's a lot of that in setting up shop. But to me, it's very important to uplift and work with and collaborate with a lot of the local people. And it's also my issue with a lot of retreat centers in Mexico is that people are exploiting this loophole that because something's legal, you can come down here. And I've not really pursued this rabbit hole too deeply, but in my own work, I've seen people set up shop left and right doing retreats. My neighbor over here has a bag of five MEO DMT that he got from a taxi driver and it was harvested from a toad and everyone harvest sustainably harvests, you know, every single person sustainably harvests their five MEO DMT regardless of where you're getting it from. So that's also why I'm a big advocate for at-home test kits, knowing your grower, kind of uh, being transparent about the environment in which you operate. Because for me, I see retreat centers set up and then you go, what's the impact on the local community? And it's awesome if someone has an answer for that. But a lot of times what you get is people running a mushroom ceremony for five days or a retreat 
for $4,500 and then their neighbors in the region don't even know who they are. And they, they have people coming in from Dubai and, you know, London and whatever, New York City coming in, selling them a ceremony for 4,500 bucks for a week. And again, that's something that I'm working through personally, but I would hope that there are people who can lead by example and show sort of a mutual benefit to the local community as opposed to, hey, I'm going to exploit this model because it's legal here and because I can run ceremonies. And in the long run, I think that's something we have to collectively sort of as an emerging space have a good answer for how you're going to uplift the environments in which you're operating, be that in Vermont or in, you know, send or in um, Cancun, et cetera. So, okay, moving on from that. So let's look forward to the also, year. Also, just to say, yeah. just to interrupt, Joel and Victoria um, are, again, they're very socially conscious people and they have, so they have a few different uh, uh, ent entities. That's probably a funny word. They have, uh, three different umbrellas they work under that are all connected to each other. So they have Tandava retreats, they have the five MEO education platform, and they have this nonprofit Kits Kits. Kyova. What's it? They have Kyova too, right? Oh, Cavalia Collective. Yeah. But there's some nonprofits they have that they uh, take a substantial portion of their money and they reinvest it into um, the community's, where in Mexico, I think, where the Sonoran Desert Toad uh, flourishes or to help certain communities in Mexico, I, I don't know exactly, but I do want to give a shout out to them for their uh, socially conscious practices. They're very mindful of that. That's huge. And I'm glad to hear that. And I, I'm aware of that. I did a fundraiser with them actually in Denver, and it was part of the nonprofit that also is escaping my mind. But I, I remember... Uh, I'm impressed overall with the way that they're handling business. And just, you know, to, as that touch point, there are so many people who are exploiting the loopholes and who are, you know, selling retreats and, you know, hey, I can do this. So I just think that be, wherever you are, I've often said this, I think that there's rampant abuses happening around psychedelics underground and above ground too. That just, you know, there's this idea that like, because someone's licensed and they're a clinician or this or that, that they're beyond reproach, but I think we've seen a lot of examples of that not being the case. And I would hope that that's the exception rather than the rule. I'd argue that it is the exception, but of course, you know, there's a lot of interest right now in the potential adversities around these medicines and molecules, which you touched on briefly earlier. And I think that's good, that nuance, which I know you're a fan of, to sort of find a nice middle ground, if you will. It feels like in general in society, people are being pushed towards one side or the other, be it a political spectrum or a socioeconomic spectrum. And there's a lot of value and nuance, especially around psychedelics, because I think that's part of what kicked off this huge demand is these overblown headlines and hype. And, you know, this idea that psychedelics are 10,000 hours of therapy in one session. I've seen targeted ketamine ads on Meta and on Facebook pushing that narrative that this, this, you know, clinic, if you just buy our service, it's 10,000 hours of therapy and there's no FDA or any kind of regulation around a lot of that. So again, these are pretty broad topics that I think a lot of people are grappling with. So I appreciate us having this nuanced dialogue right now. And I'd be curious, looking forward to 2024, all of these incredible educational seminars you've gone through and, and tracks, like you mentioned, the Polaris Institute and now five and... <laughs> probably a few other ones too. What are you really, really looking forward to about 2024 in the field of psychedelic medicines and psychedelics? 
Yeah, I'm curious to see what your answer to that question is. I, uh, I'm looking forward to our conference in September. Uh, that is something that is just had a, a call about that this morning and was doing some work on it this weekend, getting some speakers jazzed up to come back to Vermont or come to Vermont for the first time, talking to you about that. And um, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I heard Rick Doblin talk. I, I, I think the, the timeline for MDMA rollout in any kind of uh, FDA approved prescription uh, medical setting is at the earliest is going to be December of 2024. But I think, you know, realistically, 2025 into 2026, we're going to see um, the landscape shift uh, with MDMA being approved the way ketamine sort of rolled out in uh, 2019, 2020, 2021. That happened under the uh, under COVID, unfortunately. But uh, I think, you know, 2025, 2026, I'm looking forward to seeing how that's going to shake out. Rick said that what he hopes to see is not MDMA offered in a hospital-based setting, which costs ungodly amounts of money, but really being delivered in small private practice settings, not unlike my office right here, the little couch behind me. And, uh, you know, small private practices, being able to legally facilitate these experiences for people with the therapy um, deeply embedded as a, as a huge part of that. Um, so I am looking forward to seeing the progress there. I don't I think 2024 is a year of sort of continued uh, separating the wheat from the chaff. Uh, you know, still tons of money. We saw that $50 million from ITI to Beckley and, uh, and then this Lycos therapeutics thing. And there's, there's still a lot of money being talked about and shifted around and it's going to be lost, frankly. Um, and I think, I think I'm really looking forward to more decriminalization efforts. That's one thing that I'm super, super excited about. I don't think as a culture, we're there to, to legalize all medicines. I know, you know, Joe Moore and Kyle Buller, Bueller, they're friends of mine and they're very much all about all drug legalization. Uh, and I, I, I'm in support of that. I just don't see the culture at large really getting behind, um, you know, widespread legalization of all drugs, but all the decriminalization efforts going on across the country, including here in Vermont, we have a bill that I worked on last year, testified, going to be testifying hopefully again this year to decriminalize psilocybin, sort of like a little bit like the um, Colorado model, but just psilocybin, not like all the natural medicines out there. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing that roll out so that, again, there's so much demand and, you know, psilocybin FDA approval is like 2027 at this point. So let's get these decrim models, let's get these educational models and these training models out there so people can have these experiences safely and effectively and see if it helps them. Yeah, I think you nailed it with the separating the wheat from the chaff. And I was pretty non-public about my connection and relationship to psychedelics for many years, as many people were not, because it was not polite society talk, you know, in 2011 or whatever, if I had gone into some corporate environment or a networking event and started blabbering about psychedelics, unless I was in a little Silicon Valley pocket, then that would potentially jeopardize future career opportunities. And then, you know, that was probably for 15 years that it was like that. And I wasn't in a mental health profession, right? I was actually teaching high school for a while. And we had no drug education program at that high school, despite the fact that we had so many students who were obviously using different substances. And it was sort of a hippie high school to begin with. And I felt so upset 
that I couldn't really legitimately speak about my own experiences and, and so on and so forth over many years. And uh, then all of a sudden the switch flipped on that around 2018, 2019, which I think a lot of the Johns Hopkins studies and the various clinical studies really did serve to validate psychedelics as a potential, you know, polite society talking point and tool, et cetera. That's one of the main uh, benefits, I think, that a lot of that data essentially corroborated is that all of us weren't crazy. We weren't burnout, hippie dropouts who were a, a sore spot for society, that now we can actually speak with authority a little bit and be taken seriously. That's still sort of on the come up right now, right? Like, But again, I think like in my own circle of friends growing up with, it wasn't something I could really talk about. When I went to school in San Francisco, I found out really early on that a whole bunch of people in Silicon Valley and in the arts and tech scene were actively using things like mushrooms, DMT, et cetera, and really high quality things. You know, they had DA chemists in some cases who were in behind closed doors giving out DMT to tech people. And, you know, that's, that's a whole other story there. But it, it's really interesting that I often saw this huge divide between how come these smart people and these, you know, successful artists are doing these things, but in mainstream society, we're not allowed to talk about them. And if I bring up the fact that I've done solo macrodose mushrooms many times in my high school, that I, it's too much red tape and we can't talk about it. So we'll just have no drug education program instead. And we'll let these kids mix prescription drugs with cannabis, with vape pens, with this. So that's something I'm hoping to see in the future. And I know that Rana Hashimi with No Drugs, who's a friend of the podcast and mine, and she just published a peer-reviewed study, which I have to read after this last week, and is starting to roll out more of these trauma-informed, best practices, evidence-based, yada, yada, evidence-based programs for drug education that they've been piloting in public schools in the Bay Area and in Oakland and in, in inner city schools. That's something I'm excited about is like, we can start talking about this and we can separate the wheat from the chaff. And there's value to anecdotal experience as well. You know, a lot of these cultures who have been working with entheogens, psilocybin mushrooms, et cetera, for millennia, they don't even have a written culture. You know, in many cases, it's oral, it's anecdotal experience. It's passing on from one generation to the next. And for me, that was really tough to sort of integrate, to use the word of the medical profession, after having these macro macro dose mushroom experiences because there was no lineage or legacy there was no rite of passage right you look at a lot of indigenous cultures there's a rite of passage you look at how iboga is used by the buiti there's a, a ceremony and a, a legacy and you do it at a certain age right so on and so forth the same with the mazatec we do not have that in western culture and i think it's one of the grave dangers that as the mainstream turns on to psychedelics there's not a lot of education, but they're available everywhere. And I think that's the conundrum right now that a lot of the regulatory agencies are facing. And just to round out, round out this thought, we went from Professor David Nutt of Drug Science in around, around 2015, publishing a study saying that psilocybin mushrooms are the least dangerous of all drugs and this whole spectrum of different psychopharmacological agents to today where we're having to temper the dialogue a little bit and say, well, as I often share on this podcast, I have a friend who got naked and punched a cop in the face his first time eating mushrooms. So like, it's not like there's no danger there, but like where that pendu pendulum lands in the middle is kind of anybody's guess right now. So I'd be curious uh, if we could dive into that a little bit, a little bit about when you do have someone coming to you who's interested in talking about these things, what are some of the 
asterisks or some of the harm reduction, trauma-informed, but realistic uh, lenses that you bring to those discussions? Well, as a clinician, it's and and frankly, even underground practitioners, I, I think we need to be uh, aware of. Uh, that's a big question. There's so many things to. Uh, if someone comes to me and says, "I'm interested in having a psilocybin experience," now I can't. I, I don't offer that. I can't offer that in any legal way. I can refer them to legal channels or, or um, or to uh, clinical trials or something like that. I can't recommend it. I can't promote it, but I can, I can mention there are these resources out there, but regardless of that, I can educate people. I, and, and a lot of the, there's so many different like bulleted list things that, you know, we need to be aware of and asking people, um, have they done their research? What psych, psychotropic medications have they had in the past? Have they worked? Have they not worked? What other drugs have they used? What medical conditions do they have? What kind of trauma do they have that they're aware of? They may not even be aware of. Um, what's their social life situation like? What's their uh, what's their home life situation like? Uh, their intimate relationship. I mean, there's so many different things that need to be screened and discussed. You know, I think one of the most important things about these drugs and rolling them out, I don't care what kind of setting they get rolled out, is how much education, research, preparation have people had before ingesting five grams or three grams of mushrooms or taking a hit of 5-MeO-DMT. The more education, the more research, the more preparation that they can do, the more likely it is they're going to have a safe um, experience that ultimately is most likely helpful, even if it's a difficult experience. And I'm not somebody who likes to minimize um, challenging experiences or bad trips and that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, some people can have very upsetting experiences that can last a while after the after the journey itself. And, you know, to, to say that, oh, you just had a challenging experience and it's just stuff you need to work through. That's it's good that that happened to you. You know, it means it means you're really, you know, addressing your shadow and things. Like, it's like, well, they might have actually been traumatized. What was the setting like? Were, were they supported by the person that was up? Were they by themselves? Were they in nature? Were they in the city? Were they, you know, did they have enough food in their system? What kind of, uh, what was in the room at the time? Was there a dog barking? You know, there's so many different things that can really make these experiences either uh, really safe and effective or totally go sideways. And as as clinicians or as underground practitioners, we really need to be mindful of all those things. So we, this idea of education is so important. Uh, we've trained 43, the Psychedelic Society of Vermont has trained 43 clinicians in a very rudimentary ketamine um, training program. And we offer these conferences where people can, can connect and, and network with each other and, and listen to the leading researchers and underground practitioners. And these podcasts, this one, you know, hopefully someone's listening to this and learning something about this, this ecosystem that we're talking about. The more we can talk to one another, uh, again, embrace the nuance in between, get out of stepping on people's toes and getting these stupid arguments that serve no one uh, and, and just, you know, elevate the, elevate the discourse and push push for progress in the right direction rather than getting sort of encamped and entrenched in our own biased viewpoints is, uh, is really the task that we all have. And I, I, I implore all of us to sort of realize that when we get, when we get our backs up against the wall and feeling like we're being pressured by a position that we disagree with, like, 
you know, hold on a second, like take stock here. You know, everyone's got their opinion. They have a right to their opinion, right or wrong. We don't need to, you know, throw each other under the bus. So that's, that's my message. Totally agree. I often share that. I feel very fortunate and blessed to have had my first psychedelic experiences before I had social media and before I even really used the internet or had a smartphone or anything like that. So it forced me to go to the library. I remember reading Dr. Mark Plotkin books. He was an ethnobotanist at Yale, wrote Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice. I wrote that, I read that freshman or sophomore year of high school. And here was this Yale trained ethnobotanist who was describing miracles and essentially advanced science in the Amazon with a tribe that he stayed with that he couldn't understand. And I didn't hear anybody else at that point talking about that in my world. And, you know, for all intents and purposes at that point, it was still, these are primitive people and this is advanced medicine in the West. And now we're starting to have to grapple and reconcile with that a little bit. When you have these molecules that have been used in indigenous cultures and societies for since time immemorial, at the vanguard in some ways of Western medicine. So I think there's a real need for diplomacy right now for a lot of reasons, not just in the psychedelic space, but beyond, because we've largely as a collective forgotten for, for different reasons, how to engage people on the other side of the party line or with a different discourse and talking point. And I think social media has really exacerbated that and isolated people from each other. So there's a lot of a lot of reconciliation that needs to happen. But an easy thing to do is to just have these one-on-one -on -one dialogues like we're doing and just to, you know, put aside your biases sometimes and be able to empathize and listen and hear somebody else's worldview and, and experience because all of these socio-political elements are being mapped onto the emerging psychedelic space. They can't help but do that. Like you internalize your socio-political, socio-economic environment, and that's how you frame and see the world. And psychedelics are emerging essentially into this culture that really puts a lot of emphasis on this data science, clinical worldview. So just a few thoughts there on that. Now let's touch on a subject that's a hot button issue right now. I haven't actually talked about it, and I'd just be curious to hear your perspective on it. But with ketamine, ketamine was the booming you know, vanguard molecule of the psychedelic renaissance for a few years, largely because it was legally available. There were, I don't know, something like 800 clinics in the US and a bunch of clinics in Europe. It was on the WHO's list of 100 essential medicines, so on and so forth. And then all it took was the death of one major cultural figure to really throw a lot of question to, to jeopardize, in a sense, that landscape. And there's been a lot of, you know, ketamine clinics making official statements, and there's been a lot of mainstream press. And today, The Guardian published an article asking if Matthew Perry's death spells the end of the ketamine industry. But I'd be curious, not just about that, but about how one adverse event or black swan event, if you will, can throw into question all of this emerging research around psychedelics. And I wonder, what would it look like if a major cultural figure died under the influence of psilocybin or MDMA, et cetera, obviously speculative. What is the role of a black swan event or a terribly adverse tragedy as such in how we collectively frame and talk about these substances? Well, I think going back to what we said before, and we've touched upon it a couple of times now, if we're not talking about the risks associated with these experiences, whether it's the drug itself or the settings in which they take place, then we're really doing a disservice. So all the hype and all the excitement and all the research and the, you know, the renaissance, which, you know, 
suggest this ebullience, this, you know, joyful, amazing, you know, and all that stuff is true. So I don't, I don't mean to say that it's not true, but if we talk about the risks bluntly, you know, people like Jules Evans and other folks, I'm not a big fan of the symposia folks and, and maybe even saying that and they hear this, that they're going to start coming after me. But, um, uh, you know, some people who are, you know, talking about the alarm bells and talking about the risks, I think it's really important because if we're doing that up front, then when these when these tragic events happen and they will, it's not like it caught us off guard. Like, what do you mean? I thought they were like this brain reset and you cured people with this stuff. What do you mean somebody, you know, committed suicide after they took ketamine? How is that even possible? Like, no, if we're having conversation, like there was a black box warning on on fluoxetine Prozac a while ago saying this is back in the early 2000s saying that they discovered that there's an increased risk of suicidality when you take for some people when you take Prozac and they put it as a black box warning and and you know that was an important I think uh, inflection point in the in the history of psychotropics now they went on to they're still proliferating like crazy traditional you know psychopharm psychiatric medications but you know there there are these inflection points and this this is one of those with ketamine right now and and you know even before this tragic death the FDA put out a statement saying you know we're we're looking into this whole ketamine industry thing because it's getting a little wild out there and with you know people getting shipped hundreds of ketamine lozenges to their home with a brief screening and um, all this stuff that's happening like they they actually put out um, a public comment or something saying you know what should we do about this if anything because they're seeing certain risks and and I I think ultimately that it's it's a good it's a good thing to um, pay attention to those risks and and regroup and figure out what we're doing the proliferation of ketamine has been nothing short of the wild, wild west, to use that metaphor. And I think reining it in a little bit, I've seen that in my own practice and in hearing stories from others, like, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm less and less a fan of people using ketamine at home. And I really think it's not a money grab, in my opinion. I really think that if people are going to use ketamine for therapeutic purposes, um, I really think it should be done with a trained professional in a in a safe setting rather than just taking it at home i've heard horror story after horror story i've i've witnessed it and you know if anything if there's going to be a correction again it's not to put more power in the hands of licensed professionals who are supposed to be like these highly regulated extremely ethical this is the only place you can do this medicine but um I am saying that a little bit because because I do see some of that being and then ketamine's different in some ways than the all these psychedelics are different. You know, MDMA is different than psilocybin is different than ketamine is way different than 5-MeO DMT is different than ayahuasca is different than ibogaine. So, you know, I think the way ketamine rolled out and this tragic event, um, it's a course correction that we all need to take stock of and and it's not intended at all to shut down the entire uh, psychedelic ecosystem. Um, I don't care if it happens with mushrooms, with MDMA, if there's some tragic event, I don't think anything is gonna slow this train down, but it does give us an opportunity to really be frank with one another and see if there's better ways that we can um, offer these tools in a safer context 
to help people and minimize the risks. So that's my that's my take home message from that. I hope that made sense. It, I was going to congratulate you on how well you articulated that. So it made a lot of sense. I couldn't agree more. And I've kind of taken up the mantle myself of trying to do grassroots education here on the program that is grounded and realistic experience as well, because I sort of went through the gamut of trying all kinds of different substances and very oftentimes not ideal environments. And I'm very grateful that I had the mental constitution and the grounding at the time to be able to continue on with my life and, you know, I'm all right, man, sort of capacity since then. So I, I am very fortunate in that regard, but I also recognize now that the fact that it's being so widely promoted, all of these different substances, also this huge legacy market, which I've also started to cover extensively, there's not a lot of, there's some great actors and there's some bad actors in that market. There's adulterated substances, as we know, there's people running telehealth ketamine businesses. I don't want to throw them all under the bus, but I have a friend who ordered some and he's like, yeah, I basically just did a Skype call, told them I wanted it. They're like, great. And then they sent it to my uh, you know, residence and that, you know, I can see how that could be beneficial to some people. You can make the argument, but it's pretty easy to see if you can just order as much as you want and then this and that and the other, it, it needing to be reined in a little bit. So, but I feel that that's the case for the above board biotech sector as much as it is for the underground right now. Like we just need to hold our horses a little bit and not project all of our hopes and desires and fears upon these mysterious substances, which is often what we do. And I've had Rick Doblin saying that in an interview that that's actually, interestingly enough, what he told me about the wolf when I interviewed him in Miami earlier this year. He had the wolf Phaedrus and he used the metaphor of us projecting our fears upon wild animals in the same way that we do upon psychedelics. So connecting that to the name Lycos or Lycos, which is Greek uh, for wolf, I think is very interesting. And I honestly did not even remember that I had that clip until I thought, you know, I did ask Rick about his wolf and he did talk about this. So that was kind of fun to unearth that earlier in the week. So let's shift to the fun stuff right now, which is satire. And that's something I've stacked my chips in because I realize Although maybe I can debate people, maybe I can be a serious journalist, that has its time and place, but it gets really old really quickly to always be trying to be, you know, digging up dirt and finding something wrong and pointing this out. Not to say that's all journalists do, but it's easy to do that and to find flaws and this and that and to be critical. Well, satire seems to present this opportunity to offer critique and perspectives in a very non-threatening, very absurdist way. And Frankly, that's also why I use the Speedo a lot in the satires. It's really hard to look at some goofy bastard in a Speedo and get angry and upset. And it feels like it's like when I give a treat to my dog, you know, I, or I, I give medicine to the dog. You put it in between two treats, right? And that's kind of how I see satires. Like here's some funny stuff we can laugh about. And maybe there's a morsel or a nugget of barbed critique within the satire. Where do you see the role of humor and comedy and satire and psychedelics? Another throwback to Rick is the dude's hilarious. You know, people can hate on him all they want, but every time I've been around Rick Doblin, he's been super uplifting, funny, in a good mood, generally a, a cool person. So again, I don't have a super ex extensive frame of reference for that, but in my limited interactions with him, he seems to really appreciate satire and so on and so forth. And so do you. Why do you think satire and comedy are useful elements in communicating about psychedelics and psychedelic medicines? It's just so important. I mean, I don't know who the quote is from. I'm butcher the shit out of the quote, but there's something along the lines: if we if we can't laugh at ourselves, then we're 
we're lost or, or, you know, taking ourselves too seriously. And that applies across the board. And so when we have these polarized perspectives where people are, you know, shouting from the rooftops that they've got the model and they know what they're doing and this is the way it's got to go. Like if, if we can't, if we can't poke fun at those people and hopefully people in leadership can't poke fun at themselves, you know, self-deprecating humor to a degree is not, and a sign of low self-esteem. It's actually a healthy, you know, uh, healthy perspective on oneself and the world. So taking ourselves and taking everything so seriously is super, super dangerous. So that's why I think humor and satire is really the antidote to, to that. You know, it's one of the tools that we can use to, you know, dampen down or break through that polarization. And let's just all, you know, let's like have a laugh together and, and, you know, poke fun at each other and poke fun at ourselves because if we can't do that, we're we're totally screwed. I I mean that's why I love your content and there isn't a whole lot of people in the psychedelic space that are offering that. There was a movie that came out, Have a Good Trip, um, on uh, that 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 was there that was an attempt at really being funny around um, around psychedelics. All these actors like Sarah Silverman and other folks that were you know poking fun at their psychedelic experiences. They're telling stories about that, which is super fun. You know, that was a successful, I think that was a successful documentary on, uh, on psychedelics. And, and the fact that you're doing that, I wish other people would do more of that because it's really, really needed. Yeah, big time. And I would, I would like to launch something of the sort of like a sacred clown school. It's an idea I've kicked around for a while, sort of a satire festival, because there's been a lot of, younger emerging content creators who are doing journalism and multimedia content around psychedelics who have shown interest in developing more of that comedic lens and uh, sort of, I guess, my trademark calling card at this point. So yeah, I do hope to see more of that. Well, I imagine that you have some more clients and sessions today. So while I have you for a few more minutes, I'd love it if we could finish off with a couple of questions focusing more on your work and what you're specifically working on. You mentioned the conference, you mentioned the facilitator training program, but what are some of the other projects that you have in store for the world in 2024 and beyond? Well, actually, I, I just uh, was on a call yesterday, uh, a group meeting, there's a bunch of us, Ben Sessa gave a talk on psychedelics as the great disruptors, uh, which is a fantastic talk. And he mentioned that he's launching a uh, consulting business in um, psychedelics because, you know, Australia recently legalized MDMA and psilocybin, and he's been spending time out there consulting with different groups out there, setting up clinics, setting up programs, training clinicians on how to hold space for people in safe and effective ways. And so he's going to start rolling out a sort of a more formal consulting business. And I would like to be able to do that more because we can't always, I can't see patients in my office. I can't obviously offer these experiences to people legally, uh, except for ketamine. And so, you know, educating, being a consultant is something I'd like to uh, focus on more. I, I will do another ketamine training at the end of the year with the Psychedelic Society of Vermont, another conference coming up in September, 
continue to do my clinical practice. I love meeting with patients in traditional psychotherapy. And also, yeah, working on the decriminalization bill here in Vermont. And the other thing I'm really uh, deep into, which we haven't touched upon, is that you mentioned at the beginning I'm an addiction specialist, and I'm also a person in long-term recovery from addiction. And I really feel as though there needs to be much more attention placed on psychedelics, uh, not only for addiction, but psychedelics as used uh, intentionally to support recovery processes. No matter what point of recovery somebody's in, early recovery, mid-stage recovery, long-term recovery, do psychedelics have a place to uh, enhance their recovery, enhance their growth uh, for the long term to stabilize their recovery, reinforce it, help them grow. And so I'm working on some things in that area in particular. Uh, and so those are just a smattering of things. I, I like to be busy. Some people tell me I'm a good connector. We, we connected online. We know people in common, Joel and Victoria. And I just love connecting with people and that sort of mycelium network that that metaphor is used a lot. Like I seem to be very um, enthusiastic about those kinds of things. So I hope to continue to connect with all kinds of people. Absolutely. That's my favorite thing about social media. Somebody asked me the other day, it's funny, they, they started following me and then immediately asked, serious, serious question, who's your target audience? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, man, like Rick, Dr. Rick, you know, people, I just, uh, I want to connect peer to peer with people and put it out there, see how it resonates with people. I'm a fan of the Rick Rubin school of thought, which is you make the art or the content for yourself first. And that's the best thing you can do for your audience is to be radically authentic and vulnerable. And I'd argue there's a metaphor there for a lot of business and a lot of clinical approaches is that's very, uh, at least for, for my money, I want more authenticity and vulnerability and diplomacy in this world. And let's finish off right now with it's 2030. And what would your idealized utopian vision for the rollout of psychedelics in society look like? What does it in general look like in 2030 with the psychedelic mainstream? Well, what, what am I, it's like the difference between your wish list and what actually is going to, I think, I don't know how much further along we're going to be in, in six years. Um, there's going to be, you know, MDMA clinics and maybe psilocybin is going to roll out. There's going to be all kinds of, other opportunities to use psychedelics in safe and effective ways by 2030, hopefully in decriminalized or legalized states. Um, but um, yeah, then then there's like, you know, Rick Doblin's talked about this, um, getting a license to use psychedelics. And I think there's something to that. I haven't really spent a lot of time, you know, deep dive into thinking what, what that would look like. But that model, it seems a little bit, you know, idealistic, but that is not a bad idea. Like to get a license, you do a training program, you get your education, you get a license, and then you can, I like that. I don't think that's going to be 2030, maybe 2035 or 40, if that even rolls out. But that's an interesting idea. I'm sure you've heard that one before, right? I've heard that one. And another one that Rick touched upon, which makes a lot of sense, is about sort of uh, the other end of military training having people do a psychedelic assisted therapy to get out of the military. I'm fairly critical, I think, of the military industrial complex, but I also recognize it's not going away anytime soon. 
And there's a lot of value to it for a lot of reasons, which is a whole other topic to get into. But it's another one of those interesting Dublinisms where I had never considered that, but it makes so much sense. Growing up in San Diego, we've got like three military bases. I know a ton of military families and they all go through boot camp or basic training. And then when they finish their tour of duty and wherever it is and their service, then they just get spit out into the regular world again. And, you know, for example, one of the first podcasts I did was with Colin Wells from Veterans Walk and Talk, who I'm a big fan of personally. And they do a lot of guerrilla wellness, they call it, where they do um, high doses with veterans and so on. And it's totally unsanctioned and they're totally open and public facing about it. And a lot of veterans I've seen and talked to have benefited tremendously from having that community where it's not just taking psychedelics, but they're hiking together, they're camping together, they're barbecuing together. And you're speaking to someone who understands what you went through. Colin did two, I believe, tours of Afghanistan. And again, uh, why is there no program like that? So it's kind of in the same vein of having a license so I, I, part of why I like having these long, long form nuanced dialogues is I have to evolve my own perspectives on a lot of these things, right? I don't want to charge into 2024 and beyond with this totally closed minded bias about the way things need to work. Like I kind of want to be, you know, able to explore alternative viewpoints and so on and so forth. So yeah, okay, 2030, that would be an interesting way to see it, uh, to, to have a license to do psychedelics. So to be continued on that. Now, I feel like there was something else I wanted to get into. And, um, you know, I'm sure we could talk ad nauseum about these subjects. There's really no end to, to speaking about them at this point. There's just so many different entry points and debate points and unresolved points of friction and so on and so forth. So I guess maybe the last one we'll dive into is uh, what would you like folks in your line of work and in general people you're connected to to start paying closer attention to in 2024 in regards to psychedelics and their role in clinical practices, but also more general, more generally in life. Just what we went back to, just going back to what we talked about before, which is really, um, you know, there, there's still large amounts of clinicians uh, that aren't aware of these, the research are, are limited. They, they maybe read a New York times article, you know, at some point it's, it's hard to believe that people aren't, People in the field of mental health aren't in addiction, aren't actually, you know, studying this more deeply. But that's really my my hope for my my colleagues is to continue to be curious, seriously curious about these tools. They are going to be it's just I, I still think we're on the front end of that wave. You know, we're still very much on the it's hard to believe, but we're still on the front end. The pollen effect was what 2018. And it's like still like people are still reading that book for the first time. And so it's this ripple effect is still, is still happening. And so I think the more we can educate each other and provide, you know, seminars, workshops, hopefully healthy ones, you know, nuanced ones that aren't all about hype or all about risk and really educate because, you know, also the other thing is, is that patients are coming into our offices asking about asking us about this if you're a physician if you're a nurse if you're a pa if you're uh, a, a social worker a psychologist our patients are they're the ones reading the new york times they're the ones hearing about this stuff on the street and they're coming to us and the fact is is that you know 75 percent of us or more don't know what to say except you know uh i think those cause brain damage, or I think, I don't think that's a good idea because you're going to, you know, fry your brain or, you know, the same dare 
programming and all that kind of stuff. So that's a real disservice. So I think we really need to do a, a better job of continuing to get the word out in healthy ways so that clinicians know how to talk to patients because they're the ones that, you know, they want information and we're, we should be able to provide them with good information. And I think you're doing a stellar job of that from what I can tell. So I hope that you can extrapolate that into more people in your field who have a, a similar inquisitive, upbeat, but slightly skeptical viewpoint as well. And uh, nuance, let's make that one of the rallying cries of 2024 as we go through an election cycle. Hopefully nuance becomes you know, an important part of our public discourse as opposed to increased polarization, which seems to be the favored you know, way of grouping people these days. So thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today, Dr. Rick. And I'll cut this, but is there anything we didn't touch on you want to dive into while we're still on it? No, I, 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 do, ground. I do have to go, but um, no, I think, I think we're good there. I mean, there's, like you said, there's so much to cover, but um, the only, I was thinking about Ibogaine talking about that a little bit more in terms of uh, that re recent research that came out, but yeah, no, maybe you could have me on again after you've gone through another, you know, a uh, couple dozen people, I'll come back. Sounds good. Well, thanks very much for coming on the Mycopreneur podcast today. Dr. Rick Barnett in the house. Have a lovely snowy day in Vermont. And thanks for all of your work. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Keep up the, the satire. I love it. Cool. All right. I appreciate that. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com, or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.